Thank you, Emma Kate. Well, welcome again, especially people that are hanging out online, watching us for whatever reason, can't be here. Uh, glad to have you with us. Um, it's been a big week for the Howell House, uh, for me. Uh, got poison ivy this week, which is super fun. Uh, our kids were at this week-long you know, day camp at Playhouse on the Square, and there was a COVID exposure, and so our kids had to go home and get quarantined for the week, which uh, was great for uh, the, the overall well-being of the Howell House. Um, and last night, uh, we, had a, we, we got a bird in our house. How that happened, couldn't tell you. Uh, but literally at 10 o'clock, this is <laughs> our kids screaming, freaking out, closing the doors. Is it out there? This is me with a broom trying to, you know, usher the, the bird back outside. It was just pandemonium. We are killing it at the Howell House this week and uh, living life on our terms, as I like to think about it. Um, there is, you know, Ted Lasso season two makes everything better. So we're, 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 we're doing well, all things considered. We have been looking at the Psalms of Ascent, which is this interesting little chunk of the Psalm, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. These were songs that the people of Israel would sing as they would sojourn and travel to the elevated city of Jerusalem. And so as they literally went up to the city on these long annual pilgrimages, they would sing these songs. This was like the, the, their Spotify playlist for these road trips. And what's so great about these songs is they, they, they capture the fact that faith is a journey, that we, we are, we're, we're going somewhere, we're pilgrimaging towards God and towards the city of God for those of us who, who claim to be following Jesus. And so these are really songs that are important, not just for that community, but they're important for this community as well. Is we need encouragement, we need courage, we need motivation to keep going and keep pursuing and following after Jesus. Now, Psalm 129 is fascinating. There are, there are a million songs these days that are kind of pump-up songs that we put in our, our, our workout playlist, songs about overcoming challenges, songs that are about how life has just trashed us and thrown us down, and yet we're still here and we're still fighting. And you, you think about songs like... Um, Destiny's Child that I included at the beginning. I'm a survivor. Um, you got um, I Will Survive, classic. You've got uh, I'm Still Standing, Elton John, classic. You've got these old, and then you got all these old school songs. We Are the Champions, Queen. I Won't Back Down, Tom Petty. You've got Hit Me With Your Best Shot. You've got Eye of the Tiger, which is by a band called Survivor. So they're like double whammy on that one. Um, then you got all these new songs. You got Roar by Katy Perry. Uh, you've got Fight Song by Rachel Patton. You've got Fighter by uh, Christina Aguilera. You got Stronger by Kanye. And of course, the, the quintessential version of these songs is the 1997 classic by your favorite band and mine, Chumbawamba, which goes like this. I get knocked down, but I get up again. You're never gonna keep me down. I get knocked down, but I get up again. You're never gonna keep me down. I get not, it's just that for five straight minutes. And uh, before there were all of these, you know, pump up workout songs about overcoming challenges, you know, there was Psalm 129. This was kind of the original 
kind of survivor song that kind of thinks about the pain and affliction that God's people have experienced, and yet they've overcome. They're still standing. There's, they've still survived. In fact, Old Testament scholar uh, Derek Kidner says, most nations tend to look back on what they have achieved. Israel reflects here on what she has survived. So I want to break down this survival song really under three main ideas. I want to think about that God's people survive, why they do, and why it matters. That God's people survive, why they do, and who cares? What does that have to do with anything? So let's look first at just the fact that God's people survive. And to do that, let's just walk through the first few verses. Verse 1 begins from the perspective of an individual person. You picture this caravan of people, they're traveling to Jerusalem for this annual worship feast and somebody shouts out, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. He starts thinking about the abundance of pain greatly that he has experienced from the hands of oppressors. And then he catches himself and stops and invites everybody to sing with him. He says, let Israel now say, meaning let's sing this song together. Oppression is not just a part of my individual story, it's a part of our story. Uh, this is not a I survived song, this is a we survived song. And then he paints this really vivid, pretty disturbing picture in verse 3 of what it feels like to experience the kind of oppression and affliction they've experienced. You know, back then, farmers would till up fields with, with plows. And the way that it would work is you have this kind of pole with this sharp point at the end of it. And this pole was attached by ropes to oxen. And as the oxen walked through the fields, the, the pole would be in the dirt and drag along behind them. And so it would, it would till up the ground and kind of carve these ditches into the ground, these furrows where you could then plant stuff. And the psalmist is saying, the plowers have plowed up my back, meaning you have the, you have the people of Israel in this posture where they're on their stomach and their back is exposed and outstretched and... The, the enemies have, have, have taken oxen and they're driving those plows, carving furrows into their own backs, just, just shredding their backs to ribbons and back and forth, just this really graphic picture of abuse and torture and affliction from people in power to people who are in this extremely vulnerable, submissive, subjugated position. And it reminds me of Harry Potter book five, uh, to not spoil anything, for those of you that may not have read it or haven't seen the movies, uh, you might remember that Harry comes across a professor that's not very nice. And this professor punishes Harry by giving him this special quill so that when he writes out his lines, when he gets in trouble, instead of the ink showing up on the paper, it carves that message into the back of his hand over and over, just carving, his hand bleeding. It's just this really awful scene in the Harry Potter movies of this, this torture that he's having to experience. And that's a little bit of this picture in Psalm 129 of this, this carving torture that the people of God have experienced. And so you have this, uh, and then look at this, where he says, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. That's a little bit of a shorthand in the Bible to refer specifically to their time in Egypt, enslaved, afflicted by oppressors in Egypt, which is to say the people of Israel are saying oppression has been a part of our story from the beginning. 
This is just a part of who we are. We, are, we have always been a marginalized, powerless, oppressed people group. And in fact, if, if you were to take a time machine and just Marty McFly it and drop it any real point, basically almost any point in the history of Israel as it's recorded in the Old Testament, you would see that that's true. The people of God begin with oppression to Egypt, and then they get liberated, and as soon as they're liberated, they're going to battle, and they're constantly losing to these bigger and stronger nations, people like the Philistines and the Amalekites and the Edomites and all the ites, and then you have the global superpower Assyria come in and take over the northern kingdom, and you have the Babylonian Empire come in and take over the southern kingdom, and then by the time you even get to the New Testament, the people of God are subjugated to the Roman Empire. Being a marginalized, powerless, oppressed people has just been a part of the church's story from the beginning. And then in verse 2, you hear, you get this pivot. This is when this becomes a pump-up song, a a workout song. Look at at verse 2. It says at the very end, yet they have not prevailed against me. We've gone through all of this. They've afflicted us from the beginning, plowing up our backs, yet they have not prevailed. We have endured. We have survived. You know, Eugene Peterson, who is, has been one of the primary resources that I've been using to walk us through the Psalms of Ascent, in his book on these, here's how, here's how he puts it. And again, I'm, I included this in your bulletin if you want to follow along. But he says... For long centuries, those who belong to the world have waged war against the way of faith, and they have yet to win. They have tried everything, but none of it has worked. They have tried persecution and ridicule, torture and exile, but the way of faith has continued healthy and robust. There's an early church father named Tertullian who has kind of gone down in history by this famous line that he came up with. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Meaning when, when you try to exterminate the church, when you try to exterminate Christians, their blood is in some ways only fertilizing the ground for more growth. Uh, think of the church like kudzu. No matter how hard, no matter how many times you hack it away and chop it away and you think it's over, you think it's done with, you turn your head and you look around, it's back even stronger. Uh, um, Theodore of Beza, who lived during the Protestant Reformation, 16th century or so, he's gone down in history as famously saying this little line to King Henry of Navarre, and here's what he says. It's an amazing image. I include it in your bulletin as well. He says, sir, it is the lot of the church of God to endure blows and not to inflict them. But may it please you to remember that the church is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. Isn't that an amazing image? The church is this anvil that no matter how many times hammers have smashed it, the hammers keep wearing out and the anvil stays strong. It endures. And in some ways, this is just kind of obvious The fact that God's people endure and survive is proof in this very room. Here we are in 2021, which is nearly 3,000 years after this psalm was written, in Memphis, Tennessee, which is on the other side of the planet from when this psalm was written, and the church is still going strong. God's people are enduring, are surviving despite everything. But the deeper question is why? Is it because we're so strong? And so resilient, 
Maybe because we're just strategic and we've just put the right people in power and it's kind of all worked out for us and we've thought this through and we've, no. Why does the, why do God's people survive? That's the second big idea. And here's a pretty simple answer. Here's why. Because of God. Look at verse four. It's just pretty obvious. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. When it talks about uh, the Lord being righteous, it's talking about the Lord's faithfulness to keep his promises, that the Lord has promised to covenantally bind himself to his people and preserve them and hold on to them, and he's lived up to that promise. He's made good on his word. It's not our faithfulness to him that has kept us around for so long. It's his faithfulness to us. Um, And then look at verses 5 through 8. The second half of this psalm is really a prayer for the oppressors to end. Verse 5 is literally praying against the haters, those who hate Zion, those who hate God's people and God himself. He prays, look at verse 6, he prays that they would be like the grass on the housetops, which is an amazing image. uh, When we used to live in Knoxville, the neighbor across the, the, the street from us was really, for all intents and purposes, essentially a hermit. Never left his home, uh, never took care of the outside of his house, never took care of his yard. And in Knoxville, uh, we have these things called gutters around the edges of our our roof. I'm unfamiliar, I haven't seen one in Midtown yet. Maybe they're out there, but I haven't seen any. But um, but because he would never clean out his gutters, leaves and things would fall in the gutters and they would decompose and essentially turn into soil and then Seeds, however it works, blows through. And so at the beginning of every spring, <laughs> you look at his house, and you have these weeds and grass growing all like almost like this fence for his roof on, the, on his whole kind of scene over there. And, and that's a little bit of the picture that's going on here of whenever you get some soil for whatever reason that gathers on the rooftop of a house, something's going to grow up through there, a little bit of soil. Even, you know, it on the grass, I mean, the, the cracks in, like, concrete, little random pieces of grass will grow up through there, somehow find a way to live. But here's the thing. Because the soil is so shallow, so thin, it pops up, and then the sun scorches it, and it dies. And that's what the psalmist is praying. With this oppression, with these people who are so committed to violently opposing the church, would they be like a flash in the pan? Would they just come and go? Uh, come to nothing. And if you zoom out and you look at human history, you can see empirically how faithful God has been to keep that promise and to answer that prayer. Think about um, Assyria, Persia, Babylon, global superpowers that in the Old Testament uh, exiled, murdered, kidnapped, tortured, enslaved the people of God. Global superpowers that are now footnotes in history books. Uh, Think about the Roman Empire. The Christian church in many ways came into existence, came into its being by, you know, it began with 12 unimportant uh, peasants and tax collectors and fishermen. And they came into their own in the middle of a global superpower with almost unlimited access to resources and wealth and were aggressive and did not like the Christian church. And so what the Roman superpower or what the Roman empire did uh, was uh, saw Christians in half, feed them to lions, 
hang them up, tie them up on poles and set them on fire while they were still alive. And you think about these two entities at odds with each other, it feels like, okay, this is a no-brainer. The Roman Empire has all the power, they're aggressive, you got 12 misfits, it's game over. 2,000 years later, where's the Roman Empire? You can go over there and see the ruins and the broken down monuments and artifacts, and then where's the church? It's alive and, it's in this room. It's alive and well, it's spread out across the globe by the millions people that claim to follow and to worship Jesus, the church that has transcended and crossed over racial lines and socioeconomic lines and different cultural lines, the church is growing, the church is alive and well. And even when numbers and, and there's decline of the church in the West, the, the, the church is exploding in parts of the planet like South America and Africa and uh, China which shows you that the church is alive and well and God is being true to his promise and the church will be around long after Google and Facebook or footnotes in history books. The church will be around long after the city of Memphis is not a thing anymore and the United States of America is not a thing anymore. The church will outlast them all, not because we're faithful and we're awesome, but because God is. In fact, what's so amazing about the God of the Bible is that he's not a God that just preserves us in the midst of oppression. He is a God that enters into it with us. Did you know that as Jesus is being beaten and tortured before he goes to the cross, do you know what it says? It says that the, the Roman guards flogged him. You know what it means to be flogged? It means to have your shirt taken off and your back exposed and outstretched. And then Roman guards would take whips and literally whip gashes into your back, furrows ripped crisscross into his own back. What you have here is a God that is not content to remain safe and distance from suffering and affliction and oppression, but a God that's willing to enter into it and join his people in solidarity, to not just suffer and die for us, but to also suffer and die with us. James Cone is a, is a famous black theologian. He wrote a, a really fascinating and uh, somewhat controversial little book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And what he does in that book is he does all this historical research to analyze the, the spiritual songs and the theology that came out of the black church in America. And he notices there is a dominant theme in every nook and cranny of the black church in America. And he, said, you know, he says, you know what it is? It's the cross. From beginning to end, the cross has been this thing that the black church has continued to orbit around, pivot around, and keep going back to. And, here, and he says, here's why that is. Because the black church saw a God that was willing to come down and have his back lashed too. To have a God be hung up on a lynching tree too, a God that's willing to join us, enter into this suffering with us, and identify with people like us who feel powerless and marginalized and pushed down. We have a God that's willing not just to preserve us, but to enter into the suffering with us. And here's what's fantastic. Three days later, he bursts out of the grave. He suffers with us, and then he comes into new life, which means if you are united to Jesus by faith, his story becomes your story. 
sin and evil and death could not hold him down. He prevailed over them, which means if you are connected to Jesus by faith, he suffered, we will suffer. He rose to new life, you will rise to new life, which means in the end, not even sin or evil or death can prevail against you. Not because we are faithful, but because he is. Not even death itself can separate us from the love of God that he has for us in Jesus. Now, you hear all of that and you say, okay, well, what does that matter? Because if we can be honest, I don't know about you, but my guess is you don't really identify with the experience of oppression that you find in Psalm 129. I don't. I don't know what it's like to have my back ripped to shreds. Uh, and that's, you know, that's not to say that we don't have our own pain and we have our own struggles and that we, we, in some ways, many of us have probably even endured different forms of abuse. This is talking about something very specific, what it means to be afflicted and oppressed for your faith. And what's, what's interesting to think about to put our cultural moment into context is the church in America, specifically the white church in America, has not been on the receiving end of oppression. We've been the ones that have been doing the most of the oppression. We're the ones that have experienced a season of privilege and comfort and ease and power. And, and here's why this matters, point three. Why this matters is because our culture, as you know, is rapidly shifting. And our, our culture is becoming more and more and more post-Christian, which means that the church is going to be more and more pushed out from a position of prominence and power and more and more to the margins and more and more to the edges. There's a million ways that you could point to to cite that this is the trend that's happening. There's, a, no, there's no shortage of statistics, although I'll give you a few. A uh, hundred million uh, people in our country have no contact with the church. Over 85 million people in our country have never been to a worship service ever, have no intention of going to a worship service. In fact, you know, millennials, millennials are the least religious generation in our country's history. This was a statistic from a number of years ago, but the statistics said that over 35% of millennials are religiously unaffiliated. They're, they're, they're called uh, by you know, cultural uh, analysts, nuns. Not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S. None affiliate, no religious affiliation whatsoever, none. Uh, you see the, the language, any kind of language about God being removed from public spaces. You see more and more laws that are being passed that are at odds with historic Christian belief and practice. You see school curriculum that's coming down the pipe, talking, taught in public and private schools that are, are more and more at odds with historic Christian belief and practice. So as the culture shifts, what's, what's our response? Because in many ways, if you think about the church like the big kid on the block, church has always been the big kid and kind of got to boss everybody around and he had power and influence and got to take people's lunch money and and uh but now the, the the big kid on the block now feels like he's being bullied by everyone else around him and that's pretty disorienting for somebody that's used to being in charge and now is no longer in charge and so which is to say not to say that the church is not without its reason for being bullied and picked on either like we we are equally as uh, villains as we are victims. So what's the church's response as our, as our culture becomes more and more post-Christian? Do we walk in the ways of self-pity where we say, 
hey, we're, we're the martyrs over here. We're the only ones doing it right. And we're just, it's a shame that we're getting picked on and beaten up by the world so much. Do we walk in the ways of self-pity? Do we walk in the ways of the world where we just, we fight back? We get more aggressive. We try to reclaim our position of power. Got to be the big kid on the block again. No. We don't walk in the ways of self-pity. We don't walk in the ways of the world. We walk in the ways of Jesus. Which means we endure the opposition that may come our way with patience and with love. And that opposition may come in the smallest of ways of eye rolls when people discover that you're a Christian. It may come in the ways of being totally written off by your friends or your neighbors when they discover what you actually believe about things. It may come in the form of physical violence. I don't know, that day may be coming. But like Theodore Beza said, we endure the blows, we don't inflict them. This is what it means to walk in the ways of our crucified and risen king who suffered on behalf of his people from a position of humility and a position of weakness, who gave of himself even for his enemies. And so what this means is that we are not called to control the world from a position of power. We're called to serve the world from a position of weakness. We're not called to control the world from a position of power. We're called to serve the world from a position of weakness. Now, if you're anything like me, you hear that and you think, that's a bad plan. That's not going to work. That strategy seems flawed. And yet, if you were, have, if you were to tell me God's plan for saving the world is by having a homeless peasant in some obscure Middle Eastern village be executed by the Roman Empire, I would have said, that's a bad plan. That's not going to work. That's crazy. And yet, God's ways have proven to be a lot wiser than our ways. And so we walk in the ways of Jesus knowing that in the midst of affliction, in the midst of oppression, in the midst of suffering, he will preserve us. And not even death itself can remove us from his very grip. So your invitation this morning is to put your hope in God, to not put your hope in politics or power or presidents, but to put your hope in God, a God who endured oppression so that those of us who are oppressed might endure. Let me pray. Father, I do pray that you would give us the hope and the confidence to walk the humble road, the road of Jesus, to carry our cross in love and to not retaliate, to not feel sorry for ourselves, but to know that this is what we signed up for when we chose to follow a crucified and risen Messiah. I pray that you would help us more and more to put our hope and our trust in you and not in our plans, not in our strategies, not in our endurance. We are only here because of your faithfulness to us. I pray that that would inflame our hearts with gratitude, empower our hearts to keep going and walking this road, knowing that you are with us and knowing that you will save us in the end. It's in Jesus' name we pray.